We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. And welcome everybody, Steve with Sense Fidelum, coming to you with a little book review with Dr. Paul Kengor of The Devil and Karl Marx. And also, if you're familiar with the Politically Incorrect Guide series, the Pig series is more famously said, he wrote the Politically Incorrect Guide to the uh, Communism, which if you don't have it, get it. It's fantastic. I just read Devil and Karl Marx right here too. Get it when it comes out August 5th, uh, 18th. Uh, really, really well done, Doctor. Appreciate you even doing this. Um, yeah, good to be with you, Steve. No, yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, communism, Marxism, socialism—is there a difference? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a difference. And so, look. According to here's part of the problem today, right? If you ask ten different socialists for a def- definition of socialism, you might get ten different answers. Mm. If you get 10 different you know, democratic socialists, that's the thing that's common right now, you might get 10 different answers. And part of the problem is that a lot of the young people, especially millennials, who say that they prefer socialism over capitalism, or many of them are even now saying that they prefer communism, but usually in the polls, Steve, it's something like 44% say they prefer socialism versus 42% who say they prefer capitalism. So something like that. Uh, although that said, there's a there's a very disturbing number of people right now who are saying positive things about communism as well. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes when you ask them, well, what do you mean by that? You find out that they really don't understand it, right? And some of the very same surveys that have come up with that data have asked the question, well, how do you define it? And you'll find that with millennials in particular, they defined it as uh, people being kind to one another. That's actually a quote, right? <laughs> Um, people sharing a kind of a merry government social net, right? A, a social safety net. But according to according to strict Marxist theory, Marxist-Leninist theory, so the writings of Marx, the writing of it, writings of Engels, Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, published in 1848. The whole kind of corpus of Marx writings, according to the writings of Lenin. And it's usually referred to as Marxism-Leninism, especially mm-hmm. Lenin's book, The State and Revolution, which he was writing you know, September 1917, right about the time of the October Revolution, 1917. According to Marx, according to Engels, according to Lenin, socialism would be a temporary transitionary step on the way to full-blown communism. So history would pass through this dialectic, this series of stages, from, from slavery, to feudalism, to capitalism, to socialism, to communism. Mm-hmm. Um, Marion Smith of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, I love this metaphor that he uses. He says when he's, uh, when he's asked the difference between what's a socialist and, and what's a communist, he says, well, just as, as Christians go to heaven, socialists go to communism, right? And I, and I like the religious metaphor there because to, to, to quote Pope Benedict XVI, to, to communists, right, communism was like the New Jerusalem. So these guys who, ironically, Karl Marx talked about religion as being an opiate of the masses, opium of the masses, or superstitious idiots, they ended up treating Marxism, Marxism-Leninism, as a kind of religion. Mm-hmm. And I go through that in The Devil and Karl Marx. I quote a number of different people, Arthur Kessler, former communists, the people who left the movement who were in it, talking about how they saw communism as kind of a, a religious vision. It would be a utopia. And Marx talked about it in this very utopian language. So truly, to the kind of Marxist-Leninist socialists who, who really see socialism as this march of history leading to communism, 
socialism to communism really is like for the Christian, right? The Christian getting to heaven. It's, it's like a heaven on earth, like an earthly utopia. So that's what they mean by it. Now, if you go to, and I do this with my students at Grove City College, I teach Marxism every spring semester, and I've been teaching this in comparative politics every fall semester since 1997. If you go into Google, and then again, who knows what Google says right now? It's crazy, <laughs> crazy. But for the longest time, if you if you go into Google, if you go to DuckDuckGo, wherever, and you type in socialism, what should pop up is a Merriam-Webster definition or something like that, which says socialism, common ownership of the means of production. Mm -hmm. That is the one thing, if you get a room of 100 socialists together, assuming that they're at least semi-well-informed, would all say, yes, give us eight or nine words, right? Half dozen words. Socialism is common ownership of the means of production. Uh, they would all agree on that. 1918, Labor Party, Manifesto, um, Clause 4, right? Socialism, uh, common ownership of the means of production. Fabian Socialist, Socialism, common ownership of the means of production. So what that means is, common ownership is public ownership or really government ownership of the means of production. So if you if you were even to get Bernie Sanders and you pinned him down on this and said, okay, look, you're a lifetime socialist for real, right? Give us a definition of socialism. But he'd probably have to say after squirming a little bit, depending on what's unpolitically feasible, that you think of, okay, Bernie, it's common ownership of the means of production, right? And then, and then he'd probably say, yes, it is. And then you would say, okay, well, if you want to become President Bernie Sanders as you wanted to in 2016, as you wanted to in 2020, tell us, if you were President Bernie Sanders and you could wave a magic wand and get whatever you want passed through the Congress, what would you have the government own, right? What would you have the government own? Now, a full-blown Marxist, right, would have the government own, you know, pretty much everything, right? And, and by the way, Marxists will argue with you on this stuff. Well, when Marx talked about the abolition of private property, he didn't really mean abolition of private property. Well, read the manifesto. I go through this in The Devil and Karl Marx. He doubles down on this. Um, it, it, it says the entire communist system may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. And they repeat this two or three times, They yeah, Marx and Engels. So you are horrified with, at us for saying, do away with private, private property. Well, is that what we mean? Yes, that is precisely what we mean. They say that. And so then the communists throughout history, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Fidel Castro in Cuba, Mao Zedong in China, where the banning of private property will come down to pots and pans, it is not just a home, not just property, um, personal hygiene products, right? And oftentimes, and you'll have the, the modern day communists will come along and say, well, they weren't doing communism, right? Well, it, it, Marx never specified, you know, how much private property, right? He talks about how communism will allow him to uh, herd cattle in the morning, fish in the afternoon. Do you get to keep your fishing pole, Marx, right? Because in Cuba, you're not allowed to fish on the beaches. In Cuba, you're not allowed to own boats. Mm -hmm. Look at look at a satellite photo of Cuba. It's an island without boats because people jump in the water and swim. 70 to 100 miles, they try to swim to Key West. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it depends on the communists, but, but you know, to varying degrees, they ban private property and government takes ownership of the means of production and even private property. So anyone listening to this right now who's a communist or a true intellectual socialist, they're nodding. They're saying, all right, you know, I don't like Ken Gore here, but what he's saying is this is correct. You know, we get a bunch of us together in a room and we're going to quibble over what property you should have and what you shouldn't. But you know, a full-blown kind of Marxist-Leninist, complete 100% communist society, I tell you this, you know, you're not going to be... <laughs> You're not going to be owning the property that you own in a free market system like America has. By the way, I prefer the term free market rather than capitalism mm -hmm. because capitalism assumes and it makes an ism, an ideology 
out of what really ought to be a basic human right to own property and, and have the free exchange of ideas and goods. So it's a, it's a long answer. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I'm fine with long answers. It's never an, it's never an easy question to, to, to answer. But strict Marxist theory, socialism is the final transitionary step to communism. And you will get a lot of millennials today, especially democratic socialists. Uh -huh. And their group, Steve, is called the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Go to their website, dsa.org. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a member of the DSA. Mm -hmm. She was that before she was a member of the Democratic Party. Um, Ilhan Omar is DSA. Mm -hmm. Rashida Tlaib is DSA. And they had, by 2018, 2019, they were saying that they had 40,000 to 50,000 members and about 217 chapters on various college campuses. Now, Communist Party USA, cpusa.org, they've been around for hundred years, pretty much a hundred years. They claim that they had a membership surge under Donald Trump and their membership surge has taken them up to about 5,000 members. So, you know, some surge, <laughs> 5,000 for CPUSA versus upwards of 50,000 for the Democratic Socialists of America. So that's where the action is. It's with the DSA. And a lot of these people will say, I'm not a Marxist. I'm not even a socialist. I'm a democratic socialist, right? But um, I won't get into all of this. I talk about it in The Devil and Karl Marx, but Lenin and Mao and all of those guys and Engels, they all talked about democracy mm -hmm. as well. They all favored democracy, but the way that they define democracy isn't the way that most Americans would define democracy and think of it in the tradition of, of Madison and Jefferson. They think about it in terms of equality, quality. That's what that's what they mean by democracy. So, beware, be wary of the kind of you know hardcore leftist revolutionary who's using the word democracy. And uh, in fact, do some googling and see how how Bernie Sanders defines democracy. They mean it much more in terms of not people thinking here like, oh yeah, democracy. You get to vote and you have freedom of speech and press. No, no. No, 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 no. Not that they're against that, but they mean it in terms of equality. And there's a danger with the modern secular progressive left in particular, which is always expanding and applying its new definitions of equality. I knew, Steve, that when they changed their call from same-sex marriage or gay marriage, when they changed the tag to marriage equality, uh -huh. I said, that's it, they won. They won. Whatever you want to do, all right, just put equality to it. Marriage equality, bingo, it's done, right? Gender We're equality, boom, got it. Trans equality, boom, you got it. That's the right slogan to use with Americans, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Words matter. Yeah. It's like a phrase like like Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about this right now, but so many people, if you're against it, it's like, what, you don't think Black Lives Matter? And he said, no, 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 no. I'm making a distinction between lowercase, obviously Black Lives Matter, and the organization, uppercase Black Lives Matter, where if I read their website and it calls for hashtag defund the police, and it has the stuff on the about section about being against the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, and uses words like comrades, right? Look at all of us right there. Mm -hmm. I'm against that. Right. So, but, but it shows with a group like Black Lives Matter, you get a slogan like that and they'll put it up on the side of Fenway Park. Yes. Right? Which they have. <laughs> yeah, quite literally. Quite literally. And if you're against it, well, you know, what kind of a, what kind of a What's racist you? cretin are yeah. you? Right. 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 Now I've heard, I've heard it before that the 1928 democratic uh, stand or political uh, presidential campaign, they had a, uh, 28 platforms, I think it was, or something like that, that they stopped running because the Republican and Democrats were already pushing for what they were shooting for. And com the Communist Manifesto, we've, the UN, we as in the United States of America, we've touched some of these planks as well, correct? 
Yeah, definitely. If you go through the the ten point plan of Marx and Engels, which which is in the Communist Manifesto, and I and I and I walk through this in the Devil and Karl Marx, I think probably in chapter one. Uh-huh. The the so in a sense, Marx and Engels can rightly be criticized for being too vague, right? Abolition of private property. Well, how much private property? What do you really mean? Okay. But in other areas, they were very, very specific. By the way, they also talk about, quote, abolition of the family, uh-huh. even the most radical flare up at this infamous proposal of the communist. That's verbatim right out of the communist. But the 10-point plan in, in the communist manifesto, so point one is, is abolition of property and land and so forth. That's point one. And then two and three, talk about um, abolition of all right of inheritance, uh-huh. um, implementation of a graduated progressive income tax, which um, progressives in America today talk about that like like it's etched in stone or was carved into the Liberty Bell in 1776. <laughs> it didn't start until 1913. Right. We didn't have in America a, a permanent graduated progressive income tax on income until 1913 when 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 the constitution had to be amended to do that it's the 16th amendment mm-hmm. allowed for that uh, abolition of right of inheritance i mean you're allowed to inherit money in the united states but at various times and we've been fighting this battle for the last 30 years the the inheritance tax the death tax mm-hmm. right that uh, that is um, there's another term for it too estate tax the uh-huh. estate tax but not that long ago when i was in college or i guess even middle middle 1990s this is off the top of my head i hope i don't say this wrong but at one point it was 50 percent for certain incomes and property above like two million a year or whatever it was and that, that's just the federal tax when you die right the government gets that percentage of your money that you were going to bequeath, you were going to leave to your kids. And and by the way, that money has already been taxed. Sales tax, property tax, income tax, you name it. Uh-huh. That's the money that you've been that you've saved, that you thought you've been able to keep, right? And then you die and 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 you lose half of it or a quarter of it, or 28% of it, or 20% or whatever. So the the idea of, of inheritance tax that that uh, abolition of all right of inheritance is is one of the top three points in the in the, the ten point plan ten point plan of, of of Marx and Engels and what's so ironic about that is that the only reason that Marx had any money at all was because after he finished bilking it and squeezing it out of his parents who um, I go through this I think in chapter three of the devil and Karl Marx horrific in fact both Marx's mother and wife said Carl we wish rather than writing about capital you would earn some capital so after Marx was done getting all the money that he could from them he then went and pretty much was subsidized for the rest of his life by Ingalls and Ingalls inherited all the money from his wealthy capitalist father so what hypocrites these guys were, and it, it's it's really important to know what their personal lives were like, because their personal lives have a lot to do with the kind of a revolution that that they wanted for everybody else. Yeah, I think you call Carl a moocher in our uh... yeah, Marx the moocher. Yeah, yeah, then... Marx the moocher, horrible, absolutely horrible. It was devastating to his family. His, his his children, at least one of them, uh, almost certainly the youngest, um, Heinrich Guido. Um, there, uh, well, no, there were two. There, there were two boys, but 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 the one, the youngest, almost certainly died from you know, exposure to the elements, unhealthy living conditions, mm-hmm. and you know, Marx's wife Jenny really suffered, really suffered, and. She said it, it's in her letters, and we have letters from Marx to Engels talking about not a day doesn't go by that my wife doesn't wish that she was in her grave. And of course he cheated on her with the family nursemaid who he got pregnant, refused to acknowledge the child's existence, 
Marx was really just a, a, a terrible, a terrible individual. He really was. Yeah, that, I was talk about his views on religion. Yikes. Yeah, I was, I was about to say that because I, I knew he was Jewish uh, brought up, but I didn't know about the Lutheran connection. And yeah. when I read the next chapter about the, his racism and anti-Semitic, I, I was wondering, Ooh. did he get those ideas from Luther as well? Yeah, <clears throat> I don't I don't think so. The so he was he was born May 5th, 1818 in uh -huh. Trier, Germany, which which was the most Catholic city in all of Germany, the oldest cathedral in Germany, going back to, I think, around the year 324 is there 90 percent roman catholic is the community that marx was born into in fact um, catholics will find this fascinating this was the the bishop for that area born there born in that area was was none other than saint ambrose mm -hmm. saint ambrose of milan who would go on to become the the mentor to augustine and that that cathedral was founded by none other than saint helena Helena, who was the mother to Constantine. Uh -huh. And Helena, one of her pilgrimages to the Holy Land, she brought back, or she believed that she brought back, the so-called holy coat or holy robe that Jesus had on the way to his crucifixion, uh -huh. the, the one that the Roman soldiers cast lots for. And that it is actually that that robe is actually in the cathedral in uh -huh. Trier to this day. So Marx. And, and Marx uh, mocks that robe and writes about it in one of his in one of his devilish poems, one of his really horrible poems, where he where he uses uh, uh, devilish imagery, horrible, horrible stuff. I'll let people read it. It's it's quite chilling. But he was Marx was Marx was born there in Trier, Germany, and he was baptized 1824. So he was around. Five, uh, five or six years old at that point. His father had been baptized a few years earlier around the time that Marx was an infant. The father was named Heinrich. The father had been Jewish, so the family, they were they were ethnic Jews and largely religious Jews as well, you know, believed in Judaism. There was a, a, a healthy line of rabbis in the family. But the father converted to Christianity and yeah, they say under the social pressures of the day, because of anti-Semitism in that era, and, and which is probably true, I would imagine. My right? have said that. So I don't know to what extent the the father was a passionate Christian, but he definitely believed in God, and he converted to Lutheranism. The father did, which was odd because the father's brother converted to Catholicism. Many of the Jews in that area who converted to Christianity, I don't, I don't know that we know what percentage, but many, if not most, I, we think probably became Catholic rather than Protestant in this 90% Roman Catholic community. But Marx's father became Lutheran, and so did Marx. And I quote in the book some of Marx's writings about Luther, mm -hmm. and he he appreciated. Luther for what Luther did in the sense of Luther breaking away from the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Because to Marx, in the dialectical march of history, right, with, with, with the march of history taking place in these different crucial stages, the break away from the, from the authority of Rome was huge, right? I mean, this was a big deal. The idea that you, that you could now interpret on your own, you were your own authority, Right, that, that Rome could no longer be the authority. You, you no longer had to answer to the magisterium of the church. You no longer had to answer to the Pope, right? You could you could now engage in your own personal interpretation. Luther opening up that individualistic interpretation in Marx's view was was a crucial break that allowed individual um, relative you know, to make truth relative. That you could come up with your own, with your own and your own interpretation of um, of truth, morality, whatever else it was. So Marx, of course, would completely disagree with Luther's piety as a Christian because because Marx became an atheist. Uh -huh. But but Marx 
respected and appreciated what Luther did in providing that crucial foundational break from power. And was the kind of like the main religion for communism in his mindset has to be atheism. Yeah, right. Well, that's right. Ronald Reagan used to say, yeah, Marxism-Leninism, that religion of theirs, right? And they, yeah, they became, they had to believe in something. And, and for these guys and so many followers of Marxism, I quote Arthur Kessler, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but, but he talked about how the, the, it's like for the believer, right? You've seen the light, when when you accept Marxism, right? The scale falls from your eyes. There's a rapturous joy. And he really spoke of it in terms of, of religious language. Whit Whitaker Chambers, who became a famous ex-communist, said that Marxists all repeat that original mistake in the Garden of Eden, ye shall be as gods. So you eventually make yourself your own god, or in the case of Marxist-Leninists, as even Mikhail Gorbachev would say, right? For them, the Communist Manifesto and other writings of Marx and Lenin, as Gorbachev said, became like a set of canonical texts, right? And, and I should note here too, Steve, and Catholics don't know this, very few people know this. Marx and Engels, when they were conceiving the Communist Manifesto, they referred to it privately in their correspondence as their catechetical confession of faith, uh -huh. their, as their, 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 as their catechism, their communist catechism. They were using that language back and forth. And I should grab it to give you the exact quote because it's almost exactly what I just said. But they referred to it as uh, this, um, this communist confession of faith. And, and, and only later did they change the name to manifesto as a communist manifesto rather than a communist catechism. Yeah, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but like Manning Johnson, you uh, quote in there saying that he had a, he hid his faith and he said yeah. he, he sinned for doing that, but he wasn't a Catholic for you, ladies and gentlemen, but he said he hid his faith to be an atheistic communist. Yeah, he's a great story. And uh, now that I think of it, boy, we should, um, I know you want to do more interviews. We should, we should just, we should probably do some interviews just on certain chapters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could probably do 10 of these. Oh. And yeah, we could do a whole discussion, I think, just on Manning Johnson. Mm -hmm. And Manning Johnson's one of my heroes. He was uh, African-American communist <clears throat> and very important in the party, eventually testified to Congress as to what he saw. And he gave extraordinary testimony on the communist infiltration of churches. Uh -huh. And in his case, very little did he say about the Roman Catholic Church, but what he had to say about the mainline Protestant denominations, the Episcopal Church, the United Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, it's really chilling. And in his case, he could never shake the, the Christian faith that he grew up with. And it, it was always a part of him. And that there, that um, inconsistency, right? That in, that incongruity, it made it hard for him to be a communist. And so he, yeah, he's kind of secretly attending a church or wanting to attend a church. I think he was Baptist, Baptist, maybe, <laughs> right? And he he did not want to give that up. But as, as all the different communist leaders said, William Z. Foster, Earl Browder, all the others, that if you were be, if you were to become a faithful party member. You must be in the process of quote unquote liquidating your beliefs. So yeah, we'll kind of take you at first. Uh, you know, we're kind of puzzled that you would even want to be a communist if you're a Christian, right? Never mind that America Magazine, the Jesuit publication, in the summer of 2019 would publish a piece called "The Catholic Case for Communism," of all things, right? Which Marx and Lenin. And Browder and Foster would say, the what? Are you out of your mind? You can't be a Catholic and a communist. Who's writing this? Uh, well, it's uh, it's America's leading Jesuit magazine. It's called America. That's called uh, yeah. By the way, that would have gotten you literally excommunicated in 1949 under Pope, Pius's, Pope Pius XII's statement yeah. on that. So the communists would have been... Catholic case for communism. 
can we just march you straight off to an insane asylum? <laughs> really? Yes. Right? Uh, I mean, that wasn't even a Catholic case for socialism. Right? Uh, a little they go all in. Which makes you wonder, what's next, Steve? Right? The Catholic case for atheism? Don't, don't give any ideas. I probably, yeah, probably... <laughs> right. Don't give any ideas. <laughs> now, Marx was a big anti-family fa uh, fan. Like you mentioned his wife. He, you, you, you quote him saying that... Uh, he wished he was never married and things yeah. like that. Blessed is he who has no family. Yeah. Ooh. That's what he that's what he wrote to Ingalls. Yeah. Is that in the Beatitudes? Let me Oh, I saw, I read that and went, "Ooh." Okay, I think I missed that one, right? Blessed is he who has no family. Yeah, and you know, and in that case, I I imagine some Marx defenders would say, "Well, here's Marx Uh, but he was, no, he really suffered. And I, yeah, if he, in fact, he, he effectively told one of his sons-in-law that um, if he had to do it all over again, he would have never married. Oh, it's a, marriage is a thing that stupid people do, right? Ruin their lives. And that son-in-law was the one that Marx referred to as Negrillo. And a Cuban? The gorilla. And he was Cuban, wasn't he? he? Right. He was partly Cuban which meant that he had some, according to Marx, who was a strict evolutionist, uh -huh. as was Engels. So imagine Marx and Engels sitting around trying to deduce how much Negro blood was in Paul's veins and doing this calculation. Um, you know, he believed that, uh, that, that thus he, and he would use, I quote this, I was reading this again this morning and I thought, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to even type type this stuff up when you put it in the book, right? So you just use like N-word, N-dash. No, you need to type out the full word because that's what he wrote in the letter, right? It, you know, uh, Marx, Marx didn't use like, you know, N-word. No, no, no. He typed out the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He wrote the whole thing. Marx was an out-and-out -out racist as, as well as an anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, very sexist. And if if Marx was a conservative or a Republican, he would have been canceled a long time ago, <laughs> right? Any professor with a bust of Marx in his office, right, would 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 be protested by campus radicals and 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 marched right out of there. But because he's an icon to the to the hard left, kind of like Margaret Sanger, he's been able to get away with this. That, you mentioned the uh, radicals, and it popped in my your the Alinsky play, uh, Playboy quote that you put in there. I almost dropped the book reading that one. Yeah, yeah. Do you have it in front of you? Uh, I can pull it up. I know I earmark. I dog tagged that one. Uh, uh. It's pretty. Yeah, it's the interview. While you're looking for it, I'll <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit. But it's a. A 1972 interview that Saul Alinsky did with Playboy before he died. And Saul Alinsky was at the least a socialist. He was a radical. He was a community organizer. Um, was he ever a small C communist, which means he didn't join the party? He was at least pro-communist to some extent. And he even said any, any socialist or leftist who tells you that they didn't work with communists is a G-damn liar. And, you know, I abbreviated it, but he used the full word there. And he said that, among other things, he could have never joined the Communist Party because he couldn't take orders from anyone. And by the way, which is why a lot of small C communists throughout American history never formally joined Communist Party USA because they didn't want to swear a loyalty oath to the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> Although some of them, like Barack Obama's mentor, Frank Marshall Davis, did, right? They, they, did, they did go that far. But, um, yeah, but Alinsky, do you have the quote? I got it right here. I'll, I'll just read the second half of it. If you want the full thing, get the book. Uh, he was asked about if there's an afterlife. And uh, so let's say if there is an afterlife and I have anything to say about it, I will unreservedly choose to go to hell. Playboy asked why. Alinsky, hell would be heaven for me. All my life I've been with have-nots. Over here, if you're a have-not, you're short of dough. If you're a have-not in hell, you're short of virtue. Once I get into hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. Playboy goes, why them? Alinsky, they're my kind of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, here's another thing. You get this. A friend of mine who's a 
a liberal and you know, I asked her about some of this stuff and oh he's just being sarcastic they're always being sarcastic Steve right? yeah they're always being sarcastic to the side that likes them but but to the but if it's somebody that they don't like man all you need is one quote from Reagan and a statement to Nixon in 1971 that's utterly out of character with everything he ever said and did in his entire life uh-huh. and he's done he's toast right but no, these people say stuff like that all the time. And yeah, um, I'd rather be in. I'd rather be. Um, I choose heaven or hell over heaven, right? <laughs> my kind of people. They're my kind of people, and also, he includes in that book, and and, and this is rules for radicals. Mm-hmm. He includes in there an acknowledgement to to Lucifer, who he refers to as the first rebel who gained his own kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time on that in the book because that's actually uh, not not an unusual take on the devil by certain radical socialists. And I give the example of Marx's buddy Mikhail Bakunin, mm-hmm. and and Bakunin, who had nothing kind to say about God, had all kinds of positive things to say about Satan, who he hailed as the first rebel who granted himself a kingdom. And that's exactly how Alinsky refers to refers to Lucifer, refers to Lucifer in that acknowledgement at the start of his book. Now, Carl wrote about in his poems that you have. I didn't know he was a he wrote any poems till I saw the book. He writes about the devil in there. Alinsky talks about hell. Were these guys atheists or did they just did what was that? What was the devil thing? If they didn't believe in God, did they believe in the devil? Yeah, and and uh, that's one I think legitimate criticism people will say is, look, if you're an atheist, you can't be a you really can't be a Satanist, right? And and for the record, um, I do not know of any evidence ever that Marx was a Satanist. Right. That that he was um, that he was dedicated to the devil. But, but but you but you read the writings and the poems and people will see, right? This is shocking, isn't it? Hell yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you read this and you say, why did I never know this? Uh-huh. Why does not, why doesn't everybody know that Marx wrote? And it's not just one poem, right? This is all through his yeah. poems, his plays. I mean, it's really chilling and it's sick, sick, um, suicidal, destructive, awful stuff. Think of how bad you can imagine it. That's it, <laughs> right? It's really, really bad. So I, I know of no examples of, uh, examples of him engaging in, engaging in black masses, seances, that sort of thing. Although you do see with some of the different um, communists that through time, including the Potesti prison that Richard Warmbrand talked about. I was about I mean, to ask you about that doing, one. Yeah, they were doing stuff. If you wanted to make a film about what happened at the Testy prison in huh. Romania. You couldn't. You couldn't. The BNR. Yeah, yeah. You could. I mean, I don't think anybody. I don't think anybody would even visually try to depict it. It is um, beyond profane and X-rated. I mean, and that's being nice. Concentrating feces, shoving it in people's mouths. I, uh, it, uh, the the most blasphemous, horrific uh-huh. stuff. You can imagine these these guys were were engaged in. So in in Marx's case, yeah, if an atheist would not believe in the supernatural, and Marx was an evolutionist. Mm-hmm. So that being the case, um, I don't think he believed in Satan or 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 worshipped Satan or or anything like that. Uh, but the but the poems and so forth that he wrote about and the things they said and the things that he did, especially his his favorite, his, uh, Goethe was his favorite, Faust, Mephistopheles, mm-hmm. and he could walk around reciting and even chanting. His friend said he would chant this verse out loud. And one of his favorite quotes from Mes- Mephist- uh, Faust, Mephistopheles, everything that exists deserves to perish. Everything that exists deserves to perish, and that is throughout his 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 poetry as well, especially in the player and the pale maiden, and also in his play Ulanem, which uh, Robert Payne, the biographer from the '60s and the '70s, 
and also Richard Wormbrand believe was an anagram for Emmanuel, um, Ulanem. It's again, quite, uh, quite, quite chilling. So I'm losing my train of thought. There's, there's, there's so much there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll go with the church, uh, from Pius the ninth, all the way up to Pius the 12th, even mentioned John 23rd and JP two. Uh, but Pius XI's encyclical on atheistic communism, I've, I've been told before by, or I've heard and you know, not been told myself, that that is the best argument for what communism is by anything's ever written. And that was a communist saying that about that encyclical. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, that's right on. Yeah. That, uh, the, it was called On Atheistic Commun Communism, Divinity Redemptorist. Mm -hmm. And I first read that, Steve, as a Protestant. And when when I read it, I thought I thought, wow, this is this is unbelievable. I mean, this is first of all, it's the most scathing indictment I've ever heard of communism. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time when I read this, this had probably been late 1990s, and I remember thinking, wow. And and certain leftists were has through a, a a hissy fit when Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire. That's nothing compared to. <laughs> This encyclical. Yeah. I mean, they refer, they call it a satanic scourge, a product of uh, the Prince of Darkness. By the way, Marx writes about the Prince of Darkness in, in these, in, in some of these plays here. All right. I know a lot of people listening right now are probably thinking, what are they talking about? <laughs> this is Karl Marx, his poem, The Pale Maiden, mm -hmm. 1837. It's easy to find because it's right in the inside cover before the table. Mm -hmm. Thus, heaven, I forfeited. I know it full well. My soul, once chosen, once true to God, is chosen for hell. <sighs> and, you know, his soul was once true to God. And I say in this book, you really don't know if he if oftentimes he's being autobiographical, mm -hmm. right? Or if he's in the role of somebody else, it, it's true. You know, you don't always know, but you can see a lot of this really does indeed seem to be autobiographical. And I quote different Marxist biographers on that. I mean, I want to be fair, right? I, I have plenty of negative stuff to say about Marx as it is. We don't want to overstate anything. Right. You also don't want to understate anything. Here's Marx's um, poem, The Player, 1841. Look now. My blood-dark sword shall stab unerringly within thy soul. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till I go mad and my heart is utterly chained. See the sword? The prince of darkness sold it to me. For he beats the time and gives the signs. Ever more boldly I play the dance of death. So that's not unusual for Mark. He's got he's got a lot of verse like um, like that, and so the I don't know how much of that was. I know Marx's writings were were read by the Catholic Church, and I have that in one chapter in particular in the Catholic Church going through all the encyclicals going back to 1846, qui pluribus two years before the Communist Manifesto was even published. Uh -huh. And it was warning about how deadly the ideology of communism would become. I remember when I, when I read that, Steve, I thought, wow, I mean, this has got to be divinely inspired. How could, how could they have known all this? Yeah, how they see that coming? The Manifesto hadn't even been published yet. Yeah. How could they have known this? I mean, the idea of communism was out there, it existed, and Marx and Engels were, were called upon, tasked by the Communist League Communist Party to create a single programmatic statement or manifesto professing what communists believed. That's why the Communist Manifesto was published. But what the church wrote in that encyclical, Cleopatra, there was Pope Pius IX, mm -hmm. first year of a 32-year pontificate that would go from 1846 to 1878, that... Uh, to have been able to foresee what communism would do. And that was just the first of dozens of statements, exhortations, letters, encyclicals from the church um, pre predicting what communism would do. I thought a couple of the chapters you got, or it wasn't a part, it was, I guess it would be chapters inside the parts, 
liquidating religious beliefs, obliterating all religion. That seems like the main target for the communist and mindset, right? Yeah, and those titles that you gave there, those are quotations, mm -hmm. right? So, obliterating all religious belief, that was Louis Boudin's, and liquidating religious beliefs. So, those titles are all quotes. In fact, every chapter in the book is a quote. And, you know, the quote is used, and it's within the chapter, and that's that, that establishes the theme for the chapter. But in that section of the book, which I think is the longest, there are four or five chapters from current communists and ex-communists. Ben Gitlow, who was, um, and, and uh, this is important too, they're of all different stripes and beliefs. So Ben had been, Ben was Jewish, Manning Johnson, um, African-American Baptist, Louis Boudens had been Catholic and left the faith. And by the way, was was brought back into the faith by Fulton Sheen. And one of the great all-time um, ironies, I would have loved to have known this at the time, while Louis Boudens' name was still on the masthead of the Daily Worker, Fulton Sheen had already quietly and secretly brought him into the church. So he was already in the process of being baptized with his whole family and leaving communism and coming into the, into the Catholic Church. And then I have a chapter two on Bella Dodd. Mm -hmm. And, and Bella Dodd talking about putting a thousand communist men, there's debate over the number, a thousand, 1100, 1200, roughly a thousand quote unquote communist men into Catholic seminaries in the, in the 1940s or 1950s. And Taylor Marshall deals with that in his book, Infiltration, mm -hmm. others have. I've been following it for years, mm -hmm. for years. And one of the reasons why I thought, okay, I finally need to do this book, is I need to at least get out there what Bella Dodd really said, what we know that she said, what she didn't say. And in short, no one knows with absolute certainty if and how and where exactly they place, say, well, 1,100 mm -hmm. communist men in Catholic seminaries in the 1930s or 1940s or 1950s. There was, at the very least, it seems, interest and, 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 a, and a hope for intent to try to make that happen. Yeah, it's not in the it's not in her book, uh, Book of Shadows. Uh, I know she talked with Alice von Hildebrand and uh, Alice is talking about it in other interviews. But yeah, full machines. Yes, uh, school School of Darkness. School of Darkness. Yeah, because she had been she had been a uh, an organizer for the for the New York State Teachers Union. Uh -huh. And her role for the Communist Party was to organize teachers. And so that's one of the things that I spent a lot of time on, which is that it, it, Bella Dodd was experienced in like getting a thousand people and having them infiltrate a union in just like one state of New York. Mm -hmm. So if they were going to go to any comrade, right, to do this, Bella would have been the one to do it. I mean, she would have been the one to say, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. This is what I do, right? I organize this way. I, I could do this. She, she would have at least expressed confidence that, that that she would have thought that she could have done it. And half the half that part of all those chapters is a lot of vintage full machine in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of it. And th those chapters were hard to write because they were, they could have been 10, 12,000 words each. Mm -hmm. And the, the editor, John Morehouse of Hand Books, St. Benedict Press, who's just great. Uh, I, I really, in giving him those chapters, I thought, oh, I'm going to give him too much. Right? I'm going <laughs> to give him too much. But a lot of it, it's so detailed and so rich. And those chapters are mostly from congressional testimony mm -hmm. done by Gitlow, Louis Boudens, Manning Johnson, William Z. Foster, and others. So they're spending all of this under oath to you know to democrats and republicans alike to congressional mm -hmm. investigators so this isn't just something that's thrown out there that's you know laying around on the internet somewhere you don't know how well sourced it is no this is straight verbatim from the congressional testimony in some cases of which it took up but it took up hundreds of pages and ladies and gentlemen we haven't touched on the frankfurt school wilhelm reich antonio oh. gramsci those next cast time. next time yes
So yeah, get the book. Uh, the Devil Karl Marx is on pre-order right now. It comes out August 18th. And since everyone's watching on my channel, Tan's giving us 15% off. You type in SF15 at checkout, get 15% off. And That's a great deal. Yes. That's actually a really good. Is it seriously? 50% is really 15, good. 15%. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh. Well, 15 is good, too. I'm going to say 50. I think I'll order 100. Can I order? Good. Yeah, if it was that high, get many and pass them out. Right, right. But 15 is good. 15 is good. But, yeah, we'll see. We'll have Paul. Uh, we'll have Dr. Uh, Kangor on more often. And, uh, uh, yes, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for the book. And uh, any final thoughts? No, let me let me know when we could do um, a follow-up, maybe a part two, a part three, and we could hit those other things, especially people like Aleister Crowley. Oh, yeah. And Kate Millett and Wilhelm Reich, who wrote The Sexual Revolution, uh -huh. coined the term, Marcuse, Harry Hay, the, 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 the gay communist pioneer. Uh -huh. There's some just really remarkable stuff that, I tell you, Steve, I hated researching it. I, I believe like it. taking a bath. Oh, that I mean, mean. At the, the end of the night, I would put that stuff down and I would just pick up a book by Catherine of Siena or somebody and you know, uh, you know, Michael the Archangel, Defend Us in Battle. By the way, um, Marx was writing the Communist Manifesto in Brussels in an apartment across the street from St. Michael the Archangel Cathedral. You're kidding. Overtowering him, yeah. That's no, correct. Here's the, I mean, just the research itself. There's the up. footnotes. I mean, I, I didn't count the pages, but that's a quarter of an inch. <laughs> yeah, the it was the manuscript was about 140,000 words, and the book was over 500 pages, and, and so we we had to cut it down the text a little bit. I think it clocked in about 460 pages. Yeah. And so there's, um, but it's the stuff is really. It's riveting, and it's the kind of book I think that I would advise people read a chapter at a time and then really stop and pause and think about it. And besides, you're going to need to take breaks. Yeah. <laughs> I busted it, it, out in two days, but it, it was an easy a read. Month at a time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it really is pretty chilling. Yeah. It a, and it was an easy read, too. It wasn't like it was. you need a PhD in English to be able to pull right. this off. It was, good, uh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, well done. Uh, thank you. Again, thank you for doing it. And, uh, we'll talk next time. Okay. All right. Thanks, Steve. Yes, sir.